Amen. Thanks. Isn't that a great story about God's providence? Give us this day our daily bread. That is our, should be our regular prayer for the providence of God. And how he decides to give that and when he decides to give that, one thing we always will know, it'll always be exactly what's needed. And he uses the need we have for provision to press us into him, to make us dependent upon him because that is the way he's designed us to be. Well, my name is Duke Bendix. I speak here ever so often because I, and as a result of being on the staff here, but I'm so grateful for the opportunity to be able to minister tonight. Uh, we are continuing in our epic study of knowing God. I don't know how long we've been on the topic in general, knowing God. We now break it out into sections, and well, we've been three weeks now on the holiness of God, and I'm going to tie that up. Pastor Paul Harris, I believe, is going to be ministering next week on another attribute of God's nature, so you can look forward to that. But I'm going to continue talking about God's holiness. Pastor Jim uh, introduced this topic uh, with some degree of gravity a couple of weeks ago. He spoke out of Isaiah, referenced Isaiah 6, the uh, incredible encounter that the prophet Isaiah had with the living God when in the temple uh, there was this vision, but it was more than a vision because it says literally the physical elements of the temple were shaking with the reality and the gravitas of what had come into in that moment had come to encounter the prophet Isaiah. And it says that Isaiah, when he encountered this vision, this reality of the throne of God with the seraphs, worshiping God, declaring holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. The, uh, the prophet said, woe is me. I think another translation said, I've, I'm undone for I am lost for I am a man of unclean lips and dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And we have revealed here something of the holiness of God that undoes us by just the sheer dimension of who he is and his purity. And we're convicted, in this case, Isaiah was convicted to the core of his being by this revelation of the holiness of God. Then Pastor Jim went on and gave us another encouraging moment. Leviticus 10, and the death of Nadab and Abihu, who were the sons of the, of, of the high priest Aaron, and they'd offered up something. It says they offered up strange fire. We don't even know what that was. But the very altar that they'd been offering sacrifices on, the very fire of that altar literally reached out and consumed those two young men in front of everyone assembled. And there was something of the revelation of the holiness of God in that that said, I will not be le honored and, and handled in any way less than I require. And the holiness of God literally broke forth, consuming those two young men. And in the story, what we have here is in this, in this we have something revealed of God's nature. Just like we had something revealed of God's nature in the prophetic encounter that Isaiah had. And then Numbers 20, we have Moses 
once again being called upon by the people in a begrudging and embittered way to, why are you leading us out here to let us die? We don't have any water again. And, the, and Moses was told by, by God to, to speak to the rock, and the water had come forth. The previous time, he had struck the rock, and the water came forth. Well, this time, he struck it again. Frustrated, probably, irritated, he'd put up with years of these people's complaint. And for that one issue, in striking the rock, he had, he had not held God in honor before the people. And for that, he was disallowed from going into the very land of promise he was leading these people to. And then one of my, one, one I thought of uh, that, that gives us a revelation. Here again, what we're talking about is a revelation of the holiness of God. And there's something about the nature of God that is pictured that we are seeing in each of these encounters, each of these stories. Genesis 31, 42, Jacob is speaking and he said in he said if the god listen to it if the god of my father the god of abraham and the fear of isaac another translation the terror of isaac had not been on my side now how I, I don't know have you've ever heard a sermon on the names of god in which they talked about the terror of isaac but yet this too is a, is a window into the nature of God. And, and you see, the thing that why this is so, well, let me just make some comments on all of this. To say God is holy is to describe his character and nature as completely apart from, other than, and alien to us. It's one of the reasons why we don't hear very much ministry oftentimes on the holiness of God because it's so very much other than what, we, we, what we're familiar with and what we desire to hear about. And yet God is making, is, is very clear throughout Scripture that He is a holy God. He is completely other than we are. His alienness, his otherness is such that unless he reveals himself, we are not able to know him or discern him for how he really is. There's something about his nature. We like, we like the God that comes to us and loves us and extends mercy to us and is faithful to us, and I'll comment on that in a moment. But the point is, all of that proceeds out of a nature that is completely alien to how we are and who we are. And when we come to faith in the living God, we're coming to faith in this God. His otherness makes him terrible, awesome, the terror of Isaac, because he is beyond our understanding. You can control or try to control and manipulate that which you understand. God is frightful to us because he is not understandable in our human terms. He's beyond our control. C.S. Lewis put it this way, Aslan is not a tame lion. There's no controlling. There's a wildness about the nature of God. And for our part... 
We have to understand this or otherwise we end up trying to relate to a God purely in our terms. Last week, Pastor David Hermes began to broach the subject I want to develop tonight on how do we relate to such a God? How do we live with a holy God? It's evident that God intends for people to relate to him. Exodus chapter 3, verses 4 and 6, we have Moses encountering, uh, being encountered by God. Now understand, Isaiah wasn't looking to be encountered by God in the way he was. The sons of Aaron were not looking to be encountered by God in the way that they were. Moses was not looking to be rebuked by a holy God in the way he was. Moses was not looking to encounter God in the way he did. But God was was entering into people's lives for a purpose, but also to reveal something of himself. When the Lord saw that Moses turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here am I. And then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Once again, encountered by God in such a way that something is undone. Something is radically confronted. That we become, that this man became radically aware of something that was beyond his experience up to that time. Because God is who and how he is, we must learn, as Moses did, that we can only relate to him on his terms, not on our own. Moses removing his sandals is a picture, as David pointed out last week, of taking off what I know and understand, taking off and removing my approach, setting aside my expectations, coming to God on holy ground on his terms and his terms alone. So God is terrible. He's to be feared. He's awesome. He's unknowable. Yet he's revealed himself expressly so we can properly regard to him and relate to him. How's that? My idea of relating to this kind of a God is to make sure my I's are dotted, my T's are crossed, keep a low profile, and don't make any waves. And hopefully he just won't notice. See, when we think of the holiness of God, that's exactly what we think of. And interestingly enough, that's the kind of of things we resort to. You know, I, it's, it's funny, but the kind of cultures people get into, but uh, we grew in our early days, Kathy and I, we had a, a couple good friends. They were from Nest City, Kansas. They were Assembly of God folks, dear people. And they told us about their experience growing up in what was a very holiness, tra- holiness-based tradition. They loved to play board games. In the winter when the snow was this high in Kansas, you did play board games. But dice were evil. So you used a spinner. Now what's the difference between getting a 12 on a spinner and 12 with dice? I'm not sure. But dice were associated with gambling. And so you didn't use dice. That's the length to which are trying to be holy. Dot the I's, cross the T's, and keep a low profile. 
But that's not what God is revealing. When he reveals himself as holy, he's doing so because he wants to be related to as holy. Leviticus 11.44 says, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. First Peter, uh, Peter, the apostle Peter quotes this. He says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, but with the precious blood of Christ. So the question becomes, we've got this holy, awesome, terrible, other than, in one sense, alien God, and we're called to relate to him. How do we do that? How do we relate to such a holy God. I'm going to, name, I'm going to go through three things, try to unpack them. I, I, regard, I would regard these as kind of the elements, the basic, the building blocks for how we relate to a holy God. The first is that we must be encountered by his holiness. Relating to the God of holiness means we will at some point be encountered by the truth of his holiness and consequently the truth of our own perversity. Stepping into the realm and of relationship with the holy God. And once again, it, you, you know me, you've, those of you who've come a number of times, I always try to bring a cheery light subject <laughs> and just get everybody going with a smile on their face and edified out the, you know, it just we're, we're going to be a happy group. But the truth of the matter is the things that make us truly happy sometimes are the things that require us to adjust, make adjustments in how we think and how we live. So if God is making himself known as being this way, it is for the purpose of our ultimate benefit, for the purpose of our, our ultimate growth and development and the fulfillment of coming into what he's designed us to be. So if God has revealed this about himself, there's something he wants us to see. There's something he wants us to engage with. There's something he wants us to be encountered by so that we can be divested of that which is not right and come more fully into that which is right. The old school is, that's called salvation. That's called what it is to be saved. Being saved isn't just by knowing you're going to go to heaven when you die. To be saved is to be disengaged from what was, as Peter says here, from the, from, uh, how did he put it? The feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. We all have feudal ways that we grew up in that we learn to think, think, think out of and be defined by. And when God comes in his holiness, these things are confronted. It is God's grace that encounters us in such a way that God comes to be seen as the fear of Duke Bendix. The fear of Karen Montgomery. The fear of Paul Harris. The fear of writing your own name. Isaac had been encountered by God. I was mentioning to Kathy, I said, you know, there's no stories. Now, Isaac's got a pretty good life. I mean, his story's in the Bible. And he said, you know where I bet that came from? Is Isaac 
there was a point when his daddy had him laying on a bed of, of wood, lifting a knife up over him, and he could see what little life he had at that point flashing in front of him. He had no control of the situation. None. And just as the blow was going to be struck, the voice of God came and spoke to his father and he noticed a ram in the thicket behind him and he was commanded to offer that up instead of his son. And I'm guessing Isaac heard that and saw that interaction himself and God at that point became the fear of Isaac. I hope that never happens again kind of thing. And yet, if it does, God's faithful. He's true to his word. He'll do what he says he's going to do because I was the son of promise. And he redeemed me from the sacrifice. He brought another sacrifice. Like Isaiah and Moses... Being encountered by God's holy nature exposes the depths of what we are that is not like him, not in conformity to him. The white light of truth uncovers the perversity, the depravity, the wretched narrowness in which we live and by which we evaluate everything around us. And I am not putting anyone down and I am not putting condemnation on anyone. I'm just asking you, what wakes you up at night sometimes? I'm talking about what is what we wrestle with. Every week we come in here and we're talking about the need for God to overcome this, to deliver us from that, to address this in our lives. And I'm just saying God does us a favor when he shows us the depth of our need for him. And that's what his holiness, the revelation of his holiness begins to do. Thank God he doesn't do it in completion all at once. He just gives us a glimpse. He gives us a window. And in that window, something profound is able to happen, as it did with Isaiah. The motivation to be in relation to the God who is holy begins with a realization of just how far I am from him. I will never recognize how far I am from God. I'm pretty good. I'm doing all right. You've heard Pastor Brett talk about it numerous times. I'm not Adolf Hitler. I didn't, I'm not, I'm not the Unabomber. I'm not bad. But we live in this kind of self-deception, this kind of self-delusion. And what it is, is it's a way of protecting us from what we never want to look at and see about ourselves. And oftentimes it isn't until something really hard happens in life that we were forced, a death, a loss, a tragedy, a terrible mistake on my part. And I'm forced to look at what, I, what is really there and has been all along, and I've carefully camouflaged it. And God in his, in his, in his wonderful nature comes and he shows us something of himself. And when he shows us something of himself, something's undone in us. The curtain falls. The camouflage drops. The reality is seen. 
I've always said to people when I've counseled that intimacy with God, listen to this, intimacy with God begins with seeing in some clear degree how far I am from him. My intimacy with him can't occur until I see how far I am from him. We've got to see how far removed we are and how, what that creates for us. The dire straits that puts us in. That the heaviness of heart that we experience, the hopelessness that we experience. And I realize I, I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not assuming or presuming nor am I condemning. Again, I say this, anyone here, I'm trying to talk about honestly how we are. Because if we weren't honestly and truthfully this way, God wouldn't expose anything when he showed up in his holiness. We'd be just fine. Hey, good to see you. <laughs> High five. No, we're like Moses. We hide our face. I don't dare look. I don't dare look. Truth is our friend, I tell people. The light of truth is always a sign of God drawing us more perfectly to himself. Such encounter uncouples something in us. We say to him with Isaiah, I'm undone. Like Peter kneeling before Christ in wonder and fear at the great catch of fish, we say, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man or woman. And yet he's clinging to his knees, don't leave. Such is the response that the revelation of holiness brings to our lives. Such encounter is pivotal. Something in our thinking, motivation, direction is altered. Not completely, not finally, but a clear break occurs with what has shaped us. I want to suggest tonight that as we rediscover holiness, and I was reading uh, A.W. Tozier, and he said, he was writing in the 1950s, and he said, he said, it, it, he said I, I trust he was making a statement that prophetically may, it, may there be a redawning, a new dawning of the reality and the importance and the centrality of the holiness of God that would come amongst his people. And the only way that can happen to you and me is when it happens to each one of us individually. Now, we can't bring that about. Isaiah, like I said, did not construct the situation in the temple. Moses didn't construct the situation at the burning bush. But I do believe that we need to become and we should be people that said, Oh, God, I hunger for you. Make yourself known. Make yourself known. I've told the story of different aspects of it. I'm not quite sure when I was saved. There was a series of encounters with Christ in which there was a dawning in my heart and understanding. But they, but they culminated in Corvallis, Oregon, when I was at Oregon State University in the, in the winter of 1970. And I was, I, was, I was trying and doing what I could do, and God was helping me come out of, out of the drug culture, out of a, a manner of life, of self-orientation. It was terrible. No, I wasn't the Unabomber, but in my soul, I was one bent person. And I came to a point, at, there had been numbers of points, where at one point I gave every, all of the wreckage of my life to the Lord and said, if you can make anything of it, it's yours. But this was, this was even after that. 
And one night, I don't even remember what precipitated. I was in this shanty that I lived in. I was on a carpet you would never get your face close to. And I was praying and crying out because I was desperate. And there was a moment where I had such a clear sense that Jesus Christ himself was standing in front of me. And I couldn't look up. I dare not look up. And something at that point pivoted in my life. What I'd been wrestling with, I'd, I'd been wrestling and up and down, up and down. But something got uncoupled by that moment of grace, that encounter with the holiness of God, and I began to move. Not without problems, not without difficulties. I didn't get up, dust myself off, and say, glory to God, I'm a new man, and begin to head the... No, there was something... There was something, just ask my wife, whom I married about six, seven, eight, nine months later, and no, a year and a half later, and she will testify that he didn't dust himself off, or if he did, he <laughs> needed to do it again. But something was uncoupled. Something was, was, was released by that encounter with the holiness of God. And I just want to say the first the first part, the first element of living with a holy God is to be encountered by his holiness. Only the Holy Spirit can bring such a, an encounter. Conviction of sin is far less a matter of regret for the wrong things I've done than a profound realization and regret for the way I am. How I am, even who I am as I've come to live my life at this point. Again, not condemning myself. See, that's, that's the goofy thing we've gotten into. We want God expressed to us in terms of love that we, that make us comfortable. To move into a relationship with the Holy God requires such a beginning. The starting point must not be God's love for me as me. Picture Miss Piggy on the screen right now. Smiling. Moi? See, we want to be loved for me. Too often the message of contemporary Christian culture is that kind of God's love for us. But it goes without saying, does it not, that if God encounters me with the revelation of his holiness, if he undoes me with the light of truth and the awesomeness of his terrible purity and perfection, if he makes himself known as he is, he must love me, otherwise he wouldn't bother that is God loving us where we are. I needed to be uncoupled from something so I could begin to become the man God created me to be. But as long as I labored under notions of how I was, who I was, what I was, apart from the revelation of God's holiness, I would always be in bondage. Second element. We must embrace the revelation of God's provision for us. Because he is holy and can be related to solely on his terms, God must provide the way to himself. The uncoupling grace of conviction that results from being encountered by his holiness positions us to believe and receive the provision of God in Jesus Christ. Is this making sense? I'm seeing... I, I just I, I don't want to lose anybody. Sometimes I cover a lot of ground, but I want you to see the development here. We need to have a heart and a desire for the holiness of God to interrupt our lives, 
to be revealed to our souls. For, not for the ex- sake of an experience, but for the sake of being all that God wants us to be. Relating to him for all that we can possibly know of him and relate to him accordingly. But when we've had that kind of encounter, it opens it up. It positions us to receive what Jesus Christ has provided for us, what God has provided for us in Christ. I'm going to go through these scriptures very quickly. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. When I've been uncoupled, when, I, when, I'm, when, I'm, uh, when I'm now positioned and postured before God in a way that says, Oh, Lord. Do for me what must be done. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Same picture there as the light that broke in upon the darkness when the Holy Spirit was brooding over the darkness at creation. Same exact, that's what Paul's picturing here. We had a brooding darkness in our soul. And light, like lightning, flashed across the landscape of that and something came alive. Something was quickened. And faith rose up in us. Ezekiel 36 describes what God does. He said, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be cleansed from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. This is what makes up our darkness. Unclean things, unclean thoughts, unclean motivations. And don't think here just of sexual impurity, please. Think of self-centeredness. Think of pettiness. Think of embitteredness. Think of all of the things that torque us in such a way that we become bent by the crippling effects of what, is, of what has not been touched and confronted by the holiness of God and consequently the redemption that comes in Jesus Christ. And I'll cleanse you from these things. But then it goes on. And I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone. I'll remove that thing that is anchored in the core of your being. That has drug you down. Held you down. Kept you from me. I will remove that. And I will put in you a heart of flesh. A heart that's alive. A heart that's sensitive. A heart that's new. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is new birth, John 3, 5. And such faith that brings us into a new birth brings us into the ability, the capacity, the necessity of identifying with Jesus Christ, with his death, burial, and resurrection. And understand, the, the Romans, I'll read it, Romans 6, 5 through 6 says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Now, we believe that. And too often we think that in believing that, that's as far as it goes. 
But you've got to understand, just like Tiffany was talking about, she believed God, she wrote the check, didn't know how any of this was going to turn out, but there was an effect faith had. There was a result faith brought about. Well, faith didn't bring it about. Faith in God brought it about. There's no, faith is, doesn't accomplish anything in and of itself. It's who faith is placed in. But when we identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, in the same way as Tiffany bill, Tiffany's bill was paid by the woman, there's something that is to be that begins to become reality and substantive in our life. It's not just, well, I died with Christ and I know I'm supposed to hold with that. No, 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 no. If you died with Christ, then what died on the cross with him was the power of your sin nature and now you've been raised in reality with him and these things are not just to be held in our heads and a kind of a faith notion in our heart. They're to produce, they're to pay a bill. They're to have an effect. They're to bring about something that really is, makes us different. And it all begins with an encounter with the holiness of God. And the third element, and I must end here, but we must embrace the truth. I think I put it a different way if it's up there. We need to prioritize the truth. And walk out our salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, if, if encountering God's holiness has uncoupled us from what has defined us, and now we are joined to Christ through new birth, we are now citizens of the kingdom, we have now been died to sin and been raised into the newness of life, we now are in a place where we can begin to proceed and live differently. Part of our mission to be disciples, to be those who learn to do all that Jesus commanded us to do, the mission of making disciples proceeds from our mission of being a disciple. Discipleship is our assignment. Discipleship is the lifelong mission, the set task and intentional process of personally becoming conformed to the image and likeness of Christ. 2 Corinthians 7.1 kind of brings these things together. It says, since we have these promises, and the promises that he's referring to in the previous five or six verses is the promise that God said, I will come and make my dwelling with you. That's just one promise that God makes, but that's a pretty good one. And he said, having these promises, what should our response be? 2 Corinthians 7.1, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Sanctification is the process of our becoming holy unto God. Sanctification is the inworking of God's holy nature in us. And for our part, we've got a part. I've said this before. See if I can quote, I think I heard it from Dallas Willard. Grace isn't about being earned, but it is about effort. 
We look at grace as something that passively comes on us. It's like the wind. We don't know where it comes from, but suddenly it's here. My, isn't this nice? I wish I could stay here. Oh, there it goes. And now we wait for another grace moment. The grace of God, the definition of God's grace, as I understand it, it's the power of his goodness. And we need to live in a way that we're regularly intersecting with the operation and the outworking of the power of his goodness. We don't earn it. That's exactly right. Grace isn't earned. Nothing to be earned by it. We couldn't do anything to deserve it. But we can make the effort to be available to it, to let it have access to our life, to open ourselves up where we need to be opened up so that the power of God's goodness can come in and transform us and change us. put a note here. We are so afraid of any leaning toward legalism or works righteousness. We often fail to consider the actual things, the tasks, the practices, the disciplines we can undertake as means of grace, ways of accessing the grace of God. The efforts that we make to position ourselves for grace to work. See, we've heard so much. I mean, my, are my holiness friends in Kansas using a spinner instead of dice. We look at that and say, well, see, that's works righteousness. Yeah, you're right. But that doesn't deny the fact that there are things that we can do and should do and find out what we can do to position ourselves so that grace can enter into our life. What defiles us? Paul says, put away those things that defile body and spirit. I got thinking about that. Physical defilement would include those things that affect our health, that's for sure. But as importantly, such defiling influences would be what fuels our physical appetites. We live by our physical appetites. What I'm presently dealing with is after-dinner snacks before I go to bed. I regard it as a declaration of my liberty in Christ to go help myself, to, oh, I've got a very limited group of things, but I have the freedom to go do things. But I'm cultivating appetites in my flesh. Not overweight. I don't need to do it because I'm trying to counter something. But there are appetites. There are the allurements that nothing is wrong in what we're allured by. But those are the things that can defile us in the level of our flesh. Our spirit, same way. What, are, what cultivates our imaginations? What paints the pictures on the walls of our mind? Say, well, it's nothing bad. That's fine. But be aware and look for ways to do away with the things that might, producing, might be produced defiling influences of that nature. Well, let me just quote, close rather. Being holy, God is totally other. He's alien to all that we regard as normal. Even what we understand of these attributes, even what we understand of the attributes we like about God, his love, his mercy, his faithfulness, are largely appreciated in terms of what they do for us. But God's love cannot be separated or set over against his just nature. 
His mercy must not be regarded without regard to his judgment. His faithfulness cannot be regarded apart from the possibility of his just rejection and the wrath that is incurred by our opposition to him. He chooses to be faithful because that's what he is in his nature. We need to appreciate the nature of his faithfulness and make sure that we're living in a way that always respects, always honors, always gives place to that holy nature. God's holiness must be more than conceptually understood. His holiness must encounter our lives and such encounter generates a faith to embrace what Christ has done. And when we've embraced the faith in what Christ has done, we are now free to begin to practice holiness ourselves and to be sanctified, a lifelong process of deep, deep, deep change that prepares us for living an unbridled display of the holiness of God. That's where we're going to. That's, I should say, that's what's coming this way. And we want to be prepared and have a taste for that. You with me? Pastor Sean, I'm going to pray for these folks and then you can lead in prayer as we close.